<laughs> How great thou art was my request, so thanks for working that one in, Michael. Um, I watched the miners get lifted out of the hole in the ground this week like you did. And as the 33 miners came up to the surface down in Chile, we saw something remarkable. The guys gathered around, their countrymen gathered around, all the rescuers gathered around, and what did they do? They started to sing. Because their souls were full, weren't they? Sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. That's where that comes from. You just can't keep it in. We go to stadium events, we go to sporting events, we watch people sing together because they don't know what else to do. We run out of ways to cheer and celebrate, so we start singing things like the national anthem because it makes us feel unified. I love what we just did. It was totally cool. What if tomorrow morning you received a phone call and it was your mortgager, the person who holds the mortgage on your business or on your house, and they said to you, We'd like you to know that uh, as a result of certain circumstances, your mortgage has been paid off in full. Would that not be cool? Would that not invigorate you? Would that regenerate you? Okay, if that doesn't do it for you, what if tomorrow morning you woke up and you looked in the mirror and staring back at you was the 22-year-old version of you? Okay, if you're in your 20s, you don't get it, all right? I said to my wife yesterday, I feel so old. When I look in the mirror, it's 22 inside, but it's not on the outside. What if you were regenerated in such a way that you just, you were ready to bust? That's what we're going to look at this morning, how Jesus is taking the earth And in those last days, after the Antichrist has been wiped out, after the second coming, the regeneration of the earth takes place. And it's totally, totally cool. You've got to get excited about this because it is the nature and character of our God to take what was old and make it new. The author of creation taking what was worn out and bring something completely new out of it. Look with me up on the screen, Revelation 21.5. This is speaking about what Jesus is going to do. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. The king of creation, the one who can create, is making all things new to regenerate. Not just the regeneration of the earth, but it started with you individually when you came to Christ. If you were a believer in Jesus Christ, he regenerated your heart. He gave you a brand new beginning, making all things new. Look with me on the screen, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The word is kainos, the word new, and it means fresh. Not like fresh when you go to the vegetable section at Myers and it says fresh lettuce. 
I mean brand new, a brand new beginning. That's what Jesus does for us. That's the promise you see there in 2 Corinthians 5.17. I asked you in the very first week when we first started studying Revelation to approach this book, and believe it or not, it was November 5th, 2009. Some of you feel like it. It's been going on a long time. 35 weeks now, we've got about four weeks left. Each week advances towards heaven. We get to see a description of that as we get there. But here this morning, we get to see this regeneration. So as wanderers and worshipers, looking at this story of regeneration, it is invigorating to see what Jesus is going to do. Scripture says that after the destruction of the Antichrist, after the tribulation, there will be a period of time here on planet Earth in which the lion will lay down with the lamb, where a wolf will walk in the field with a lamb and not kill it, but walk with it. Look with me up on the screen. No, I'm going to actually take your Bibles out. Open them up to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, they're in the pew racks in front of you. You can grab one of those. And if... uh, If you don't know how to find Isaiah, I'm just going to read it out loud for you. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he wrote about these end times things, how things were going to change on planet Earth. Isaiah chapter 11 is a prophecy chapter about Jesus and the things that he would do when he comes. Isaiah 11.6 speaks specifically about this passage of the wolf and the lamb being together. Isaiah 11.6 says this, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Anybody in here have a young son? Just raise your hand. Do you have a child, a son? Would you let your child walk with a lion? See, we can't envision that. That It goes against, it's counterintuitive. But if you read a little bit further in Scripture, you'll see that it actually says the lions will eat straw. We're talking about a remaking of the way things are today, taking them back to the way they were before the fall, when everything was pristine, a regeneration of the earth. Not just a change of our souls and our hearts, but a change of the makeup of the planet. That's what's going on here. It's called the millennial kingdom, the regeneration, taking things back to a pristine time. The millennial kingdom is one of the least taught on passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. As a matter of fact, when I spoke with like Ron Volutis uh, a year and a half ago, when I first started teaching Revelation, he said, what are you going to do with the position of uh, premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism? He was talking about the millennial kingdom. And I said, well, I'm going to teach it when I get to it. He said, do you know that I was never even taught that all my years growing up in church? He said it wasn't until a few years ago he really began to understand what it meant. It's just not taught in church anymore. Yet it's a promise of Scripture that there will be this period of time of the regeneration of planet Earth. And Jesus is the one who's going to do it. Let me show you on the screen an example of this from Matthew 19. This is Jesus himself speaking. Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, he's speaking to the disciples, 
that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That word regeneration has a very specific definition with it. I'd like you to see the big word, and we're going to try and pronounce it together. But first, look at the definition on the screen. Palagenesia. And here's the definition for it. Spiritual rebirth, the state or the act, spiritual renovation, when it applies to the Messiah, especially messianic restoration or regeneration. It accurately describes what Jesus does in your heart when you are born again, a regeneration. But it also speaks of this period of time. That's why Jesus said, in the regeneration, in the palagenesia, the disciples will sit on thrones with him. Now let me break it down for you so you can see it first as a compound, and then we're going to pronounce it together. First look at the word palin. The first part of it, palin means a new In terms of a place, it means going back to a place. In terms of time, it means going back once more, again, back to a previous time. And then Genesis or Genesea, the way you're familiar with it is Genesis. Nativity, figuratively speaking, of nature or natural. Going back to the place where everything was in its beginning, Palagenesea. So say that word first with me. Let's say the word palin together. Palin, genesia. Okay, let's put it together and say it as one. Palin, genesia. This speaks of what's going on in your heart when Jesus Christ renews you. When you confess your sins and say, I'm going to become a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, he wipes away your sins. He regenerates That's the regeneration that he brings, making it new for you. You want to go green? Jesus is the ultimate green maker. Let me show you an example so you can really get this down. It's a very important principle about how this takes place. And Peter and John spoke specifically to this issue when they were teaching in the temple. Look with me on the screen, Acts 3.19. This is a moment in time where Peter was speaking to a whole bunch of unbelievers, people who did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Watch what happens. Acts 3.19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration, palagenesia, of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Why could Peter speak so specifically of that? Because it had happened to him. Jesus died, resurrected, ascended to heaven, and Peter got it. As a matter of fact, when he's preaching this before thousands of people, Thousands of people listening to him turned their hearts over to Christ. And as a result, the leaders of the temple, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priest, hated what Peter was saying. And they said, we've got to shut him up or all of the nation will turn. So what they did is they captured them and put them in prison. But before they did, they said this. They noted that they were uneducated, unlearned men, but that they had been with Jesus. 
Wow. They had the regeneration of their heart. Peter, who was hiding, is now out publicly preaching because the times of refreshing came. He got it. He understood what it meant. This kingdom of regeneration that Jesus speaks of is the moment that all history has been progressing towards, marching slowly, God's plan unfolding, and the millennial kingdom is about to unfold where we're at in Revelation 20. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to pick up just a few verses here this morning, and it talks about the adversary, Satan, being bound and thrown into the abyss. This is amazing theology. Revelation 20, verse 1. i got to shed my coat because I get hot talking about this. See, I thought I could get away with wearing jeans this morning only if I wore a sport coat, but oh well. you got to deal with the real thing now. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. I saw an angel. Now, we're not told specifically what angel, but what we do know from Daniel and some of the Old Testament prophets is that Michael was the one who was most commonly the adversary of Satan. They're the ones who most typically did battle together. We're not told that it's Michael, though. We just know that this is an angel with incredibly great power. He possesses such great power that he captures Lucifer, the highest created angel ever, the one whom God had exalted to a very lofty position, is now about to be chained and thrown into the abyss. It says specifically that this angel is holding the key of the abyss, the abusos. The abyss is a temporary holding place. It's not hell. It's a place where demons are retained and held. This abusos or the abyss is something that Jesus dealt with specifically. Remember when he's talking to the man who's demon-possessed in Scripture? The man who was filled with demons? As a matter of fact, the man said, I've got so many, there's a legion of demons. Look with me on the screen and pick it up at Luke 8, verse 30. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abusos because it's a place of torment, a place where demons that could not be controlled in their normal surroundings like at the time of Noah were cast to the abyss, Jude tells us. This holding place is where Satan is cast. And it says that this angel has a key, meaning he's got great authority, delegated authority that's been given to him. And what does he do with the key and the chain? He binds Satan, a great megas chain. Pick it up with me in verse 2. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the, years, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. First detail. The king has arrived. Second coming has taken place. First thing he does, capture the adversary and throw him to the abyss. Deal with him. The removal of the God of this world, 2 Corinthians calls him. So we've got the removal of the God of this world. All the human rebels are gone as a result of Armageddon. And we have the removal of the leaders of the rebellion, the Antichrist and the prophet, as you've learned in the last few weeks. 
So the slate is clean now. Anyone who opposed Jesus is gone. He has freedom to reign on the earth without opposition. And unmistakably, this adversary is identified for us. Do you see the four names for him? Specifically, the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, and Satan. So that you get it. He says it four times. I'll tell you who this one is that's about to be bound. And he's bound for a thousand years. This is the first of six references to the length of time, a literal thousand-year period of time. And it says that he's going to shut and close it and seal the abyss. Why? So that the adversary can no longer deceive the nations. The adversary of God, who's against everything God wants to do, we're told, is deceiving the nations. That means right now, because he's not incarcerated, he works at deceiving people. That's his goal in life. He's not permitted here now to influence the world any longer. A thousand years, imagine that. A thousand years with no conflict on planet Earth. No wars. The regeneration, the shaking of the earth has taken place and things begin to turn green again. Jesus is not resisted in any way. Spectacularly, the change of the world is now set and begins to take place. Now just so you get the timing down, my teaching is that the millennial kingdom takes place right after the second coming and before the arrival of the new heaven and the new earth a literal period of time called a thousand years, and I teach a premillennial view, and I'll explain that to you in just a little bit. Go with me now on to verse 4, 4a. We're going to break that down. He says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. So John sees thrones set up, and somebody's sitting on them. So you've got to logically say, Who? Who's the they? Who's the they that are sitting on the throne?" God promised that the saints will rule with him, that you will be given reigning position. Specifically, who will be on the throne? Scripture says the Old Testament saints, we're talking about Moses, Joshua, Daniel. The apostles, we just read that in Matthew 19, Jesus said to them, you 12, you're going to get 12 thrones and you get to rule over Israel. And the Scripture also tells us that the New Testament believers, you who belong to Jesus Christ, get a position of reigning. I can make this really clear for you by showing you a scripture on the screen. Look with me at Revelation 5.10. The angels were declaring something about you to God. Look what they declared. You have made them, the them is you, to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Did you know that your daughters and sons of the king not just the king, the king of kings. You are daughters and sons, thereby princes and princesses. Women, if you're here with a guy today, turn to him and say, I'm a princess. You don't say it like you believe it, so say it like you believe it. Turn to the guys with you say, I'm a princess. Now, do they look like they believe you, ladies? Okay, I believe you because the scriptures say so. You're daughters of the king. Guys, you are sons of the king. You are princes. Prince, plural. 
Okay, not princesses. Prince, never mind. Okay, verse 4b. <laughs> and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The souls of those who had been beheaded, we're talking about martyrs, people who have died for the cause of the kingdom throughout the span of time. These are the souls of those who have been beheaded, and you see the tribulation saints in there, those who had not taken the mark of the beast. We're talking about a literal, physical resurrection, just like Lazarus, a rejoining of the body with the soul. That's what John is seeing here. So verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now you want to stop right there and say, whoa, who could that be? The rest of the dead and they don't get to come to life until this great kingdom is ended, the millennial kingdom, a thousand years? Who in the world would that be? When it says next, this is the first resurrection, you have to take that and apply that to those who are the redeemed of Christ. This rest of the dead is talking about unbelievers, those who denied Christ. So start with me again on verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection, speaking of verse 4. Blessed and holy is the one who is part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priest of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the rest of the dead, meaning those who die during the tribulation, those who die without Christ before the tribulation, anybody who's passed away without Jesus Christ remains dead until what you're going to learn next week. Now, this is a good point for me to remind us. This morning when you came in, you probably got some of these postcards. Next week I'm going to teach on what happens when you die based on Revelation chapter 20 both those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. The reason we gave them out to you this morning is so that you can identify one person in your life that you would give that card to, to say, I want you to hear the truth. I want you to hear the story behind what happens when you die. Because there's a lot of opinions out there, but the Bible says one thing about what happens when you die. So I'm going to teach that next week, and you use those postcards to help invite someone here to church next week if you would. So this first resurrection it's talking about here, when it says this is the first resurrection, anastasis prote, or prote anastasis, meaning the first resurrection. So if there's a first resurrection church, does it not stand to reason that there's a second resurrection? Okay? If there's a first, it says prote anastasis, first resurrection, there must be a second one in order. What's the second one? The second one is what you're going to learn about next week. Those who are unbelievers who are resurrected to judgment. But that's further on. So this first resurrection is the resurrection of believers. All ages, everyone who's believed in Jesus Christ, resurrected. Let me show you some verses. You have them in your study notes this morning as well. But I want to put them up on the screen so you can see this is really important information for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection is a big part of our story. So look with me at the promises. The resurrection of the righteous is in Luke 14 and Acts 24. The resurrection of life, 
John 5, resurrection of those who are Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, and the better resurrection, Hebrews 11, they're all the same. They all mean the first resurrection. The resurrection of the believers in Jesus Christ, souls, bodies joined together in heaven, and they get to reign with Christ for that thousand years. It's a very cool period of time. I just want to help you understand this because I know it's kind of deeper theology than we normally teach. Anastasis is the word that's used here about resurrection. So I want you to see the definition for it. Anastasis, resurrection, physical, a standing up again, literally a resurrection from death. So when Jesus says, you will be resurrected, that's the word he used. A literal standing up of the body. Physically, a resurrection. It's not just souls that go off into eternity and are never reconnected again. Scripture promises a resurrection. As a matter of fact, that word is used 42 times in the New Testament. And as a result of this, John says, you're blessed and you're holy. You're blessed and you're holy because why? Because you're priest of God and of Christ. Because the second death has no power over you. What's the second death? Hell and the lake of fire. So you're blessed and holy because you're priest of God. The second death has no power over you. The second death meaning the lake of fire or hell. Here's the truth for you. No child of God, no true believer in Jesus Christ will ever face the second death. That is a promise. That's what Scripture says. I know there's false religions that teach that people, everybody goes to hell and they have to be prayed out of purgatory or they have to be prayed out of hell. That is false teaching. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what Scripture says. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in His presence. So you're blessed because the second death has no power over you and you're blessed because you will reign with Him for a thousand years. There's the three reasons that this John says you're blessed. Understand, this is physically a time when the curse will be removed from the earth in such a way that there will be longer life. There will be prosperity, a bounty of food. The writings of the Old Testament saints about this period of time are very graphic in their details. There's well-being. There's long life. This is all part of the premillennial teaching, the eschatological teaching of the premillennial view. That's the position we teach here at New Hope, a premillennial view, meaning this. Things are continuing to get worse until the last days, the seven years of the tribulation, and then the return of the king, the second coming, and then the long thousand-year reign of Christ here on planet Earth. That's the millennial kingdom teaching of a premillennial view. There's two other views of the millennium, the amillennialist and the postmillennialist. And you know, there are respected theologians who hold to the other two views today. Specifically, here's an amillennial view, just kind of put down into a nutshell. An amillennial view would say Satan is already bound and that, in a sense, we're, we're in the millennium now. Now for me, I look around and say, I don't see a whole lot of promises of the millennium being lived out now. I can't hold to that view. 
but it's much more complex than that. Now, in the post-millennial view, they teach that he will return at the end of the millennium. In other words, the second coming doesn't happen until the end of the thousand years. Now, in that sense, the reason that's held to is that they believe that Jesus will return at the best period in history. So you've got three views, premillennial view, amillennial view, postmillennial view. I happen to teach the premillennial view. Now, we're not going to go any further into that today. Just know this, your view of God and who he is, his nature and character, has to always be supported from Scripture. It cannot be supported from your feelings. Your feelings will change and betray you. As an example of that, the post-millennial view, or the amillennial view, excuse me, was really popular in the 1800s. As a matter of fact, it dominated theological circles because in the world there was experiences of things getting better and better and better. And so as the roaring 20s approached, people were feeling like, we're really entering into a time of utopia. But then add World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, terror that we have today. The amillennial view has fallen out of favor. Premillennial view has surged in favor. Not necessarily because people can support either one strongly from Scripture except their own position, but because people have feelings one way or the other. Always make sure that God's Word is rooted in your theology. That, that is the basis of your theology. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. <laughs> okay, what do you do with that one? Don't you want to go, uh, what? I mean, if there's a head scratcher in the Bible, there's a head scratcher. Okay, this adversary of God has been captured by this mighty angel and sealed into the abyss. Why? What's going on here? And he's going to lead a rebellion. Who? Only believers entered into the millennial kingdom. You've got believers in the millennial kingdom, Jesus ruling on earth, perfect utopia, and yet Satan is released at the end of the thousand years. Perfect environment. Social conditions are like they've never been experienced on planet earth with long lifespans. As a matter of fact, look with me on the screen, Isaiah 65, 20. This is a prophecy of the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 65, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Very long lifespans people who are followers of Jesus Christ, prosperity, social conditions are perfect. All the inhabitants of the kingdom initially are believers, but believers have children, and children are born with a sin nature in them. And so we have here a generation of individuals who are being raised in this utopian-like environment who also have the sin nature that has continued on, just like Adam and Eve passed it on to us. Amazingly, even with Jesus in control, ruling over the earth, utopian conditions, people will still stiff-arm God during this thousand years. Is that surprising to you? Is that a head-scratcher? Perhaps. 
until you stop and think about the conditions that Adam and Eve had in the garden. Perfection, utopia, freshly created from God, sinless, and yet they caved in to the temptation and became sinners. So our patriarchs, Adam and Eve, handed the sin nature down to us. Since the fall, planet Earth has been primarily the stage where Satan has waged his war. Matter of fact, if you want to learn more about this, go back to June 6th when I taught on Satan and the war that took place. You can find it on the website. It'll help you to really understand this cosmic battle that's taking place. I've found that salvation is rarely a lack of information. It's a love of sin because it's rooted in us. It's in the core of our being. So it goes on to say that Satan is released from his prison and he gathers all the unrepentant sinners who want to rebel against God together for this one final battle. Verse 8 is where it ends. Satan, verse 8, and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Do you notice that Satan is just as wicked at the end of the thousand years as he was before? He immediately sets right out to cause rebellion again. It's his action. Now understand this though. Satan will provide the supernatural leadership, but all he really does is surface what's underneath people. Those who do not belong to Jesus Christ, all they need him is to surface it because he doesn't cause the rebellion. He merely reveals their true character. Those who have rejected Jesus are ready and willing to gather to try and conquer God's people. Romans 8, Paul spoke to this about the human mind. Look with me on the screen, Romans 8, 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So this is really evident for us, church, that God's judgment, the final judgment, is just because there's still individuals who will rebel. Gog and Magog, the way that it's used there is a historical reference to nations who are in rebellion against God, those who would resist him. So it's speaking of these nations from the four corners of the earth. We're talking about the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. And they all gathered together. And look how it ends, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented night and day, day and night, forever and ever. You never see Satan surface in Scripture again. That's the end of him. He's gone. God took out the trash. The word thrown is the word balo. It literally means emptying the dung bucket. He threw out Satan just like that. And he didn't even have to do it himself. He sent an angel to do it. He can be conquered because God has the power. Do you notice though, incidentally, there's two humans that are still alive in the lake of fire. It says the beast and the false prophet. That's the Antichrist and his politician. 
So the doctrine of annihilationism that teaches that people, when they go to hell, eventually perish and they're gone, that's not what Scripture teaches. It means individuals live on forever and ever and ever, except in eternal torment. That's what this is speaking of. So why the millennium? A couple points for you to take with you today when you leave. Why the millennium, this long period of time? For one, it fulfills all of prophecy. God said it was going to be this way. It's the truth of the promise of God. He guaranteed that these systems and these organizations, these pieces would fit together. All these things would fit in place in the last days. And the millennial kingdom is a fulfillment of all that. The second one, though, I think is more important. It reveals to us as a church the innate ability we have to be rebellious against God as humans who are fallen. The sin nature is so deep within us, it only took Satan's release to surface the rebellion, but people had already made up their mind to reject Jesus. The sin nature is very, very strong. So this palagenesia is point number three for me. This need for regeneration. For Jesus to take what was old and make it new. A brand new beginning. With everything that you've just heard in the last half hour, let me take you back to Acts again. To the statement that Peter made to the crowd who was listening. About the need for regeneration in your life. Acts 3.19 Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times." If you've had the palagenesia, you know it. You know that Christ gave you a new beginning. If you've never experienced that, man, I'd love to talk with you. I invite that opportunity. Church, for those who are believers, you need to be praying for those who are around you, especially as we take on something like this. That's a big deal for people to be able to answer that. What happens to me when I die? You can speak emphatically about it. You need the palagenesia. And they're going to say to you, what's that? Well, there's an open door opportunity for you. If you want to take advantage of the opportunity next week to invite people to hear the definitions behind it. In the meantime, I invite you to pray for me as I prepare for that, and I'll be praying for you as our church. Let's pray together now as we close. Father, so much has taken place in this last 90 minutes of uh, opportunity to learn about missionaries overseas, individuals who have made decisions for Christ to follow you. Our hearts have been lightened through singing. And now we hear the truth of your word through Scripture. God, I ask you to take each of these components and blend them together in such a way that it makes us more bold for your kingdom. That we'll leave here feeling refreshed, but bolder. 
God, I ask this for your church in Jesus' name. Amen.